Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. We talk about a lot of people who have gone through terrible experiences. Relatively, a lot of cases get a decent amount of exposure, and names are never forgotten. But in some cases, because of social status, or situations that are completely out of the person's control, their tragic stories aren't heard quite as loud. Tonight we're sharing the story of Crystal Reyes, whose name seems to have been forgotten. But her story is important to us, and we think it deserves to be told. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. And we want to thank you for being with us tonight. How are you doing, Rosie? I'm good. How are you, Ryan? Pretty good. I'm grateful to have a relatively normal life. Yeah? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, these things really put life in perspective for me. But before we jump into that, we want to thank our two new patrons, Rhoda and Sydney. Sydney. And I really hope I said Rhoda correctly. It looks like you did. Rhoda? Yeah, I, I'm, I can't think of any other way it would be pronounced, but I could be wrong. We just want to say we love Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, and if you follow her, you know she got some horrible news recently. And so we just want to say, if you haven't yet, be sure to send some love her way. Mm-hmm. We're really looking forward to meeting Kate in person at the True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th. And if you want to meet her or us, we'll be there, so be sure to check that out. Also, let us know if you're planning on going to that. Either email us or DM us on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. We want to know if you'll be there so we can be sure to say hi. We won't be behind a booth or anything. We'll just be hanging out. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to talk to you and hang out if you want. So anyways, enough of that. Who are we talking about tonight, Rosie? Crystal Reyes. Her story is very obscure, and it's hard to find information about it. It's not super well known, but she deserves a voice like anyone else we discuss. Our story tonight will begin in November of 1998. A man had been quail hunting about a mile off of State Route 238 in the desert of Mobile, Mobile, Arizona, which is southwest of Phoenix, Arizona. As he made his way through the rough terrain, he noticed something really strange on the ground, They were bone fragments, but not from an animal. They resembled fragments of a human skull. He called the police, and upon arrival, they confirmed that these fragments were from a human. Yeah, and this isn't something you want to stumble upon when you're hunting. Wow, what a find. The investigators had no idea whose bones these could be. There were just no leads to go off of. So nothing further happened with the case, at least for a couple of years. And I'm sure 
this kind of stuff happens out there in the desert, but it's got to be really uneasy to discover that when they have no idea where it came from. And apparently there was no missing people that have been reported they could match to these bones. So with this event in mind, we're going to introduce a few characters. These remains were found in 1998, but we're going to go back seven years to 1991. Same year I was born, and J.C. Dugard, who we covered a couple weeks ago, was taken. In 1991, there was a detention officer named Darren Stockwell, who worked at the Maricopa County Durango Jail. At the time, he was 23 years old. He had many duties as a detention officer, and one of them was to supervise the inmates for the hour of outdoor recreation time they got each day. That sounds like a really stressful job. I'd be super paranoid if that was my job, never really knowing what crazy stuff might happen. Only an hour per day? I'd be super stressed out as an inmate. I guess that's what well, it's who cares? for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this guy was only 23 years old. That's a lot of responsibility. Definitely. One of the inmates took a special liking to Darren Stockwell. Her name was Anna Reyes. Anna was 25 years old, and she was serving three years for trafficking marijuana. She had thick black hair and brown eyes, and Darren thought to himself that she was pretty cute. Darren himself was tall and muscular and pretty good-looking. He would give her special attention, playing horse with her on the jailed basketball court. A yeah. Good game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Apparently, Anna had been separated from the other inmates for safety reasons. I guess they didn't want her to get hurt by the other inmates. Because, I mean, she was just in there for moving marijuana, not exactly a violent offender. Hmm. Well, they went from spending time together to a little bit of flirting. But Darren didn't let it go any further than that, as she was still an inmate at the jail. But she did apparently write him a little love poem, which she called Whispered Secrets. Sounds pretty saucy. It does. The next year, on March 26, 1992, Anna Reyes was granted parole, just four days before she turned 26. And Anna did not waste any time. Soon after she was released, she called the jail asking to talk to Darren Stockwell. It's a bit fishy. <laughs> so her crush had continued on past being released, and I guess that's a good sign. Like, he no longer has that authoritative power over her, so maybe she wasn't just trying to be manipulative to someone that had a lot of power over her life, you know? And I guess I forgot to mention, she had been known to use her beauty as a way to manipulate people. But hey, if you got it, it's not really your fault if it helps you get what you want, you know? As oh, long know. as you want things that won't hurt other people. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I use my beauty all the time. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but, you know, as long as it's not hurting other people, what's the harm? You know, that's just my opinion. I'll remember that. In the call... <laughs> Anna asked Darren if he'd meet up with her, but there was a problem. The jail had policy dictating that guards had to wait a year before having any interaction with former inmates. That's interesting. I never knew there were policies like that before, but... I think I, it's not a terrible policy. No, it makes sense. It's just the fact that it's a policy means it's a pretty common occurrence, you know? Mm, right. But they were both willing to wait that year, and they did. 
As soon as the year passed, they met up and became really close. They would spend nearly every day together. Darren was starting to fall in love with Anna, and they talked about moving in together. Not long after they started discussing that, Anna came over to his apartment with some big news. She had become preggers. That is big news. Preggers? Well, he's being hip. <laughs> um, but yeah, they hadn't even moved in together yet, and now she was pregnant with her his kid. So. With her jail supervisor's child. Yeah. Yeah, that's... At least they waited the year, I guess. Yeah. Some big news, though. Darren was really overwhelmed with this news, and his mind raced with excitement about their future. Oh, that's really good news that he was excited about it. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do it right, and the idea of moving in together became a must in his head. So, like you just said, it's a really nice reaction. What more can an expecting mother want from her boyfriend? But then, oh, I totally agree with you. But then, Anna shocked him with her plans that didn't quite line up with his. She dropped a bombshell on Darren at this point, letting him know that she was actually married with three children. What the? Her plan was to sleep with her husband one last time and then mislead him into thinking the new child is his. Then she would divorce him and request child support from him as a biological father. Wow. Wow. So I guess she really was manipulative. She hadn't told him before this that she was married. Oh, and that's just a cruel thing to do, especially to her current husband. And Darren seemed to agree with that. Oh, poor Darren. (laughs) Poor her other husband. Yes, whoever his name is. Hearing Anna's plan bummed Darren out. He didn't realize that the woman he had fallen in love with was hiding a completely separate life from him, and that she'd be willing to throw it all away and lie to an ex about it. Yeah, some people may take it as flattering when a person's willing to lie and cheat to be with them, but personally, I take that as a huge red flag. I think most people take it as a red flag. Well, I don't know. A lot of people cheat. True. But it's kind of like a forecast for the future of the relationship, you know? And again, it seems like Darren would agree. Remember, he's a pretty stand-up guy working in law enforcement. Not that that makes you a stand-up guy, but this bombshell just didn't sit right with him. He was super devastated and decided to end things with Anna. Oh, poor Darren. I feel really bad for him. Uh The baby was born on November 26th, 1993 in Nogales, Mexico. Is that how it's pronounced? Nogales? I was asking you. Anna named her Crystal. We should ask. I know that the L, Uli, the L usually sounds like a Y, so you would think it'd be Nogales, but... Well, that's if there's two L's. Dang it. You paid better attention in Spanish than I did. Maba, can you let us know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could look it up on Google. I'm sure we could, too. Within days of the birth, Anna brought Crystal back to the United States. She knew some people from her hometown of, insert here. No gallows. <laughs> no gallows. Go with the, you know, dumb American pronunciation. Okay. Who had moved to Tempe, Arizona. These names were, oh man, Sergi- Sergio. I think it's Sergio. Sergio 
Cazares and his girlfriend Maida Diaz. At oh, some Maida. point, that's pretty close. Didn't you write this outline? Yeah, I did, but it was a few weeks ago, so I don't remember anything. Okay. At some point, Anna asked Maida if she wanted to have Crystal. What? Yeah, Maida thought maybe Anna was joking, and she replied, Of course, she's beautiful. But Anna wasn't joking. Maida and Sergio already had several children, but they were serious about adopting Crystal. I'm guessing they felt like she deserved a home with someone who cared about her enough to want to keep her. Which is really nice. So they agreed to adopt Crystal, but stipulated that Anna had to do it legally and make the adoption official. They did actually take Crystal in before the adoption was official, though. About a week went by after this, and Anna still hadn't filed any adoption paperwork to make the transition legal. So the couple gave Crystal back to Anna. This makes sense. At first, I was like, why are they abandoning her? But I thought about it more, and legally, they had no right to keep Crystal, so if Anna ever felt like it, she could accuse them of kidnapping, and it may not end well. After she got Crystal back, she moved again back to Mexico. They stayed with her mother in Anna's hometown of Nogales, but then again in December of 1993, she moved back to Arizona. I mean, you can say it with like this kind of Mexican accent. Nogales. I can only say tacos in Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you're obsessed with like Mexican culture, but you have the most Midwestern (laughs) accent ever. No, I do know. Cerveza, por favor, baño, señorita. Salud. (laughs) We were just in Mexico, so I, I brushed up. Anyways, Anna was really playing leapfrog over the border here. In one month, she moved from Arizona to Mexico, gave birth, moved back to Arizona, back to Mexico, and then back to Arizona again. That makes my head spin. Less than a year after this move, Anna violated her parole terms in some way and was sent back to jail. And we're not exactly sure what she did to violate the parole because the records of it have been tossed out. Anna was disappointed to be in jail again and wanted to get out as soon as possible. She made it clear to her supervisors that she would cooperate and do anything she could to get out sooner than later. She was able to contact her old friend Sergio Cazares, who actually worked as a confidential informant for a narcotics detective at the MCSO Special Investigations Division. In other words, this guy... This guy had connections. The detective that Sergio worked for was named Evelino Tamala. So Evelino is the next big player in this story. Let's get to know him a bit. Evelino Tamala began working in law enforcement as a transportation officer with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office in 1985 at age 22. And from what I could dig up about what a transportation officer is... They're basically responsible for giving inmates rides from jail to court hearings. And they also provide transportation for juveniles who can't drive to their hearings. That's just a brief summary of a job description I read. So So like Uber drivers, but for inmates. Kinda, yeah. Most people in the sheriff's office would refer to Avalino as Al. So we will too. But Avalino is so much cooler than Al. 
I know, but it was easier to type Al when I was making the outline. (laughs) Once he started working there, he worked his way up the ladder relatively quickly. He went from transportation officer to detention officer, then moved up to patrol officer. By 1990, within five years of starting, he had become a detective for the narcotics division of the agency. So he must have gotten pretty good at his job to move from a transportation officer, which like you said is a glorified Uber driver, to a narcotics detective in five years. It's probably harder than being an Uber driver. I just wanted to. Yeah, I would I would say there's some clear. security involved. Yeah. His superiors considered him to be a hard worker and very effective at his job. He usually kept to himself and stayed quiet, but he always produced results. Sergeant Ricker, Richard Rosky was Tamala's lieutenant. I know how to say Richard. <laughs> I just messed up for a second. Sorry. <laughs> for him, Al was the guy that was doing it all. One of his best detectives. So remember, Sergio Cazares was working as an informant for Avellino at the time. So, like I said, we're going to start calling him Al to make it simpler. Which is unfortunate. Sergio told... If you want to replace Al with Avellino, you can. Thank you. Sergio told Avellino about his friend, Ana Reyes, who was currently in jail, but wanted to cooperate with law enforcement in exchange for a reduced sentence. Soon after this, Avellino met Anna. She told him about her family, the Somozas. They were heavily involved with the Mexican drug trade. She gave him a lot of information she knew about the trafficking her family was doing, and it ended up helping them make some drug busts. Al's superiors in the narcotics division were starting to think that Anna would be more useful to them if she wasn't in jail. So Captain Steve Werner oversaw Anna's release from jail and made some stipulations for her release. She was to work as an informant for the MCSO, as well as several local, state, and federal agencies. Basically, anyone who could use her help would get it, or she'd be back in jail. So she's like a narc. Yeah, and she's legally required to (laughs) by her um, parole stipulations but there were a couple potential issues with anna's past that werner didn't overlook she had a reputation of becoming sexually involved with officers she was also undeniably considered an objectively attractive woman werner took the precaution of having two officers assigned to anna at all times so she couldn't as easily flirt with one of them along with avelino tamala or al Gary Eggert was assigned to work with Anna. They worked together for a bit, but Eggert quickly became frustrated with the arrangement because most of the tips Anna gave them amounted to nothing. Yeah, if she got out of jail early, specifically because of her inside knowledge of the drug trafficking trade, but the stuff she's feeding them isn't panning out, well, that would be a bit fishy. We have an example of one of those times. In October of 1994... Anna had tipped them off about a sale of 200 pounds of marijuana. They set up a stinger drug deal and were able to make an arrest, but they only seized 60 pounds of pot. I mean, that's still a lot of pot, though. That's still a lot of pot, though. It wasn't a complete sham. This made Eggert a bit suspicious of Anna. He also started to notice that she and Al were becoming a bit too close for his comfort. He worried that the whole situation was going down a bad road, 
and didn't want any part of it. He talked to Lieutenant Roski, asking to be reassigned. He also told him about Al becoming a bit too close to Anna, and his work performance slipping a bit. Yeah, so this guy's trying to do the right thing here. Uh, as citizens, we expect those in positions of power, especially in law enforcement, to do it respectably and not use their power to their advantage or put themselves in a situation where they could be manipulated. So I got to hand it to Eggert here for speaking up. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the specific reason that she was assigned two officers to work with her. And so it's kind of showing that there was a good reason for it. Roski then talked to Al about it, but Al assured him that nothing sketchy was happening between them. Those were his exact words. <laughs> what? I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. But even after this... Other co-workers began suspecting that Al had a relationship with his informant, and it even became a bit of a joke around the office. In 1995, the sheriff's office opened an internal affairs investigation into their relationship. After the investigation, they accused of Al frater fraternizing with Anna. What does that mean, to fraternize with someone? means like you're you know like a frat house where they live together and they're friends uh -huh. fraternizing so after this al or avelino tamala started realizing that he was in hot water and finally he admitted that he had been hooking up with anna since september of 1994 hmm. like a whole year before they even opened this investigation after this, Werner brought Tamala into his office and directly ordered him to break things off with Anna. And that sounds scary as heck. But Avelino refused to break up with Anna. And so Werner asked Al for his badge and resignation. <laughs> you keep switching between Avelino and Al. Well, I like it that way. Okay, cool. As long as our listeners know they're the same person. <laughs> Werner actually even wrote a letter to the Arizona Peace Officer Standards and Training Board advising them that Al Tamala should never again be hired into law enforcement. That's some Harsh. pretty strong um, advice, <laughs> you know? He wrote, The tragedy of this affair lies in the fact of his blatant, uncaring attitude and lack of remorse, which was displayed to Sergeant Roski and myself at the time when I accepted his resignation. A secretary at the office who formerly worked with Al thought it was kind of sad what had happened to him, because he was a really nice guy. She said, I guess love can make you do anything. Isn't that the truth? But that's a lot of pressure to put onto a little fling of a relationship like that. Like, he gave up his entire career of 10 years to be with this former inmate? That sounds like a recipe for future resentment to me. Like, if they do end up together, but it's not quite as happy as they had hoped, which, is it ever? There could be a lot of resentful feelings of, I gave up my entire career for you, and now you're not meeting my needs. I've heard that so you know? many times. Where? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's just a thought I had about this whole situation. Like, it could lead to a lot of stress and strain between them. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from. But... Things turned out financially okay for them, because his relationship with Anna brought a much more lucrative job prospect his way. By August of 1995, Al and Anna were selling smuggled marijuana. <laughs> well, this does 
this worked out. Yeah, from <laughs> police officer to marijuana salesman. Drug dealer. Drug right. Oh, yeah, that's what it's called. That is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Just going door to door with a briefcase of buds. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing the street value was a lot higher back then for marijuana because it wasn't legal in in the states back then. Now that it is legal in several states, it's probably not selling for as much on the street, you know? Hmm. They moved hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cannabis, which Al recorded in a ledger and kept in his storage locker. Now that they were making some big money, they were able to rent a two-story, five-bedroom house in a gated community in Awatoki. Awatoki. Nice job. Thanks. This community even had a pool. So in their minds, they had really moved up in the status ladder. Their backyard even came up to the edge of a mountain called Shadow Rock. They paid $3,000 a month. That's a lot of money for rent. That is. Unless you're listening from, like, New York City, you're probably like, wow, what a deal. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I don't know. I hear it's really expensive there. But now Anna and Al... We're living together, along with their three adolescent children. Julie, her three? They were her kids, right? Yeah, you're right. They were her three adolescent children. Juliana, Thali, Thalia. Talia. Talia. Oh. (laughs) Thanks, Rosie. And Luis. They were even able to hire a living housekeeper to nanny the children and keep the house clean. Because Anna and Al were often away on trips to Mexico, Nevada, and other places to do their quote-unquote work. So they always had someone watching the kids. The housekeeper's name was Maria Gutierrez Diaz. (laughs) What? Yeah, I think that's maybe right. She was 21 years old and had recently moved to Arizona from, uh, I know how to say this, Sinaloa, Mexico. Sinaloa, that's where we just were when we visited Mazatlan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it right. Maria didn't know much about the United States, so it was easy for Al and Anna to convince her that he was still an undercover detective and doing drug deals was part of his job. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy thing to tell your housekeeper to to keep her suspicion down about why you're going to drug deals all the time. I guess. In September of 1996, Anna's niece, Annette Rodriguez, moved in with the family. She was just a sophomore in high school. Which is 10th grade, in case it's different where you're from. I don't know. Annette had been going through a rough patch with her mother and wanted to finish high school while living with her aunt. Both Maria and Annette saw the family they lived with as a stable, normal family with three children and a big house. I mean, that's the way it would seem, right? If you have a big house and your parents, usually that means you're pretty responsible. But there was a lot more to this little family than they were letting on to the outside world. Not surprise, long. surprise. Oh, sorry. I mean, there's a reason we're talking about these people, so. Mm-hmm. Not long after this, in November of 1996, Anna's youngest daughter, Crystal, came to live with them. She had just turned three years old. Up until then, she had been living with her grandmother back in Mexico, where she was born. Crystal was a beautiful, happy-looking little girl who was usually smiling. She had a light complexion, 
curly amber hair and blue eyes. She was a quiet girl, and she only spoke Spanish. And this probably would have made living in Arizona a nightmare for Crystal. Now, can you imagine not being able to communicate with anyone around you? Well, a lot of people speak Spanish in Arizona. Well, yeah, but she doesn't speak any English, and she's in a country that's primarily English. So. There's a lot of Spanish-speaking people in America, though. As a person who was in Arizona not long ago... Yeah, that's easy for you to say from your privileged position of speaking English in America, but... And Spanish. Have you heard my Spanish? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have. I'm just saying... There's not enough people that speak Spanish in I the do. U.S. to make living here easy Easy if yeah. you don't speak English. By the summer of 1998, the cozy little family home was starting to have some issues. Anna and Al were having issues within their relationship that they just couldn't work out. So Al moved out and in with his mother, and Anna moved in with Sergio Cazares and Maida Diaz the old friends that she had in Arizona who had originally introduced her to Al. My guess as an outsider would be that they were having financial issues. I mean, I don't know about other places, but here, $3,000 a month is a ridiculously expensive amount for rent. Mm -hmm. It's like an entire average monthly salary just for a place to live. Not to mention the business they had gotten into can be a bit unstable, if you've seen Breaking Bad, you know the drug trafficking trade is cutthroat and literally always stressful. Because that's what we're comparing this to. It would be a hard job to keep at consistently. So Anna moved well, in. Do you think it's a bad comparison? No. I mean, they were both in. Oh wait, I guess that was in New Mexico, mm -hmm. and which is was, right next to Arizona, right? It wasn't marijuana. They were selling. It wasn't. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, it was not. Are you done? Yes, I'm sorry. So Anna moved in with her kids to live with Sergio and Maida, but the couple noticed that Anna's youngest daughter, Crystal, hadn't come along with her. They had met the baby when she was a few weeks old. Anna explained that Crystal was living in Mexico with her grandmother. And this could be easy to make sense of, especially if Crystal didn't speak any English. Mexico would be a much easier place for her to live. But why... Would she be living with grandma? I mean, wouldn't mom miss her child? This doesn't really add up to me. Yeah, you'd think so. Hmm. Anna and the kids only stayed with Sergio and Maida for a few weeks. Once they moved out, Al Tamala actually came looking for them. Sergio told Al that he wasn't sure where Anna was. While Al was there, Sergio asked him about Crystal. Now, Anna's response seemed relatively reasonable. But Al's response was very, very concerning. Based on what Al had told him, Crystal had gone missing in the desert and was nowhere to be found. Sergio got the idea that Crystal was no longer alive. But then Al told him, if there's no body, there's no death. Um, what? So, I mean, maybe this was Al holding out hope that Crystal may still be alive out there somewhere? If you are really, really giving him the benefit of the doubt, but it sounds pretty sketchy. Yeah, that does sound pretty sketchy. But something about his interaction with Al didn't sit right with Sergio. He felt compelled to pass on this information to a detective at the MCSO. Which, if we haven't mentioned, that's the Maris 
Maricopa. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Sheriff's office. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I forgot that the C stands for county. Mm-hmm. Maricopa County Sheriff's, Sheriff's office. office. There you go. And this is where Al had worked in the past. They passed the information on to a detective at the Phoenix Police Department named Don White. Don White was significant because he had actually been investigating Ana Reyes and Altamala, Altamala for a while, working along with several federal agencies looking into their dealings with narcotics. So he was already a bit suspicious of this couple and on to their um, sketchy... Man, can I use that word anymore? Sketchy business habits. And they were actually even close to securing indictments on the couple around this time. Based on the pre-existing suspicions and the unreported disappearance of their daughter, Crystal, the Phoenix police decided to open an investigation into the possible homicide case. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they report her missing? It seems very suspicious. Detective Michael Milish was assigned... Meislish. Muslish? Meislish. Meislish. <laughs> like meisless. Meislish. Moving on. He was assigned to this case in February of 1999, but a lot of the information he was getting was secondhand after the fact info was brought to him by detectives on the federal drug case. He stated that his homicide investigation priority seemed to be a secondary to the drug investigation. That sounds about right. Sad to say, but this is a trend. And I don't want to sound all conspiracy theorists right now, but there's a lot more money to be made by making a drug bust than there is in solving a homicide. And think of all the assets they can seize after making a drug bust. When they solve a missing persons case or a homicide... They just lose money. You know, they're just spending it. But anyway, I'll stop because I'm reading way too much into this. The first actual hands-on work Meislish did on the case wasn't until December 16, 1999, 10 months after he received it. He had gotten information that the other investigators extracted from Al Tamala during an interview. Apparently, they offered him a deal to get him to talk, promising that he wouldn't be prosecuted for anything he said during the interview. And that just doesn't sit right with me. I think I've said it before, but is it really worth foregoing justice just to get information? But either way, this tactic worked, because they were able to find out the truth about the little girl who had gone missing. Al told them a lot of detail, exactly what happened to Crystal. So remember that hunter we talked about in the intro that had found the bone fragments? They had been identified as fragments of an unknown child's cranium, and in January of 2000, a year and two months after making that discovery, they finally realized who these bones had belonged to. It was Crystal Reyes, and Mm. there was a lot more to the little girl's story they uncovered from talking to Al Tamala. He and Anna had abused, murdered, and disposed of the little girl. And we'll discuss more of that later on. To bring homicide charges onto the parents, the detective needed to prove that the bones they had found definitely belonged to Crystal Mayas. This in itself was a bit of a roller coaster for them. Yeah, remember that Al's interview was protected, so his interview wasn't usable as evidence against him. 
But if they could get physical evidence, then they could charge him. Al and Anna had already been indicted for conspiring to distribute and possess illegal substances, so it was easy for them to get Anna's DNA sample. But Al wasn't Crystal's father, so his DNA couldn't help them. Detective Meischlisch found out about Maria, the housekeeper, that had lived with the family for a while, but he wasn't able to find her. And for some undocumented reason, they never contacted Crystal's biological father, Darren Stockwell. So the homicide case went cold. So, 13 years actually passed with no new information. This kind of reminds me of the case we covered last week with Brandy Hanna, how there was a huge cold cold case dead spot, you know, in the mm-hmm. story. But now we will introduce yet another player in this story. ATF Special Agent Joseph Slatala. And for those of you like me that doesn't know things, ATF is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which is a federal law enforcement organization. Joseph had actually helped convict Al and Anna on their drug charges, and he was about to retire. He was aware of the confession Al had given earlier about the murder of Crystal Reyes, and that the investigation died out. So he contacted a cold case detective named Dennis Olson at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. And we apologize that there are so many names and players in this case, but now Olson was going to start looking into the homicide case. As he looked into it, he noticed that no one had ever talked with the family's ex-housekeeper, Maria Diaz. Law enforcement tech had come a long way in the 13 years since this case went cold. So, he was more easily able to find Maria, who was living with her sister in Phoenix. Detective Olson spoke with Maria, but after a brief talk, she told them that she had never witnessed Crystal's abuse. So again, they hit another roadblock in this case, and again, it stalled out. It was starting to look like they'd never get justice for this poor little girl who had suffered at the hands of her own mother and her boyfriend. But about a year later, they finally got the break in the case that they needed. They received a call from Maria Diaz, who said she had more information than she had originally shared with them. She explained that when they first came to talk to her, she was terrified of speaking up. Yeah, I mean, she had a fear of what Al and Anna might do to her if she talked. And these worries were based on something that happened back in 1997 that she suspected may have been orchestrated by the two of them. On the evening of April 12, 1997, Maria was scheduled to have a weekend off from working for the couple. Anna dropped Maria off at a nightclub that evening to meet up with her boyfriend at the time and her sister. They spent a while at the club dancing and having a good time, but when they walked out to their boyfriend's car to leave, one of the windows was shattered. That would be terrifying. After checking the inside of the car, they didn't notice that anything was missing. So, it would be confusing. Why would someone break into your car but not take anything? They decided to get in the car anyway, not having another option. On on their way home from the club, a car pulled up next to them. Suddenly, bullets started flying into their already damaged car. Maria was hit in the neck by one of the shots. She spent two weeks in the hospital after this, and her boyfriend was dead. 
The perpetrators were never identified, but given all the future events, Maria strongly suspects that Al and Anna had something to do with it. After staying at the hospital, she returned to the Reyes Tamala home to continue working. But then she noticed that Crystal wasn't there anymore. She only stayed there for a few more weeks, but something didn't feel right to her about being there, so she quit and moved in with her sister. So when detectives finally talked to her about all these events, it was 15 years after this night her boyfriend was killed. Mm. She, like Al, was um, also able to detail the abuse that had been happening in the home. But there was another incident that really clued Maria in on who was responsible for killing her boyfriend and injuring her. Al Tamala visited Maria at her sister's house after she quit working for them, warning her about Anna and implying that shooting her was not a random occurrence. That her shooting wasn't a random occurrence. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Maria also recalled that she thought she'd recognized one of the shooters. She had seen Anna talking to a man in a grocery store parking lot. They stopped at the grocery store without even going inside just to talk to this guy. And Maria thought one of the gunmen was the same guy. Maria explained that she hadn't gone to the police sooner about all this stuff because she just didn't see it as an option. Yeah, remember, Al Tamala had worked as a police officer, and he lied and told Maria that he still was. So Maria thought he was the police, and they'd never believe him, believe her over him. I almost wonder if they were trying to dispose of one witness to Crystal's abuse here, you know? They may have figured that if they were disposing of Crystal, they better off than Annie as well, so no one could be suspicious. Not to mention, they never reported Crystal missing. So this new information and witness in the case renewed the detective's passion for the case. Olson kept trying to track people down to find any more eyewitness testimony. On August 1st, 2014, he visited Crystal's biological father, Darren Stockwell, at his home. Darren had no idea what had happened to Crystal and was in shock to hear that his daughter's bone fragments were most likely found in the desert. Imagine getting that news. First that you have a daughter, and then proof that she was probably disposed of in a way involving foul play. So Olson asked Darren if he'd be willing to provide a DNA sample to see if it matched the bones that they had found. And at first he actually refused. But that didn't stop Olson. He obtained a warrant and returned to Darren's home. It seems uncooperative, but Darren said he was pretty overwhelmed at the time and he was also unsure if Anna had lied to him about being the father. She wasn't exactly the most trustworthy person. Also, Detective Olson said that Darren teared up when he found out he had a daughter. When Darren asked Olson why he hadn't been contacted way back in 1998 when the case was opened, he just didn't have an answer to give him. He said, I don't know. I try not to comment on police work too often, Um, and though I do feel like they could have done a little more with this case, I wonder if they even knew Crystal existed, you know? She was born in Mexico. Anna went back and forth several times, and not many friends of the family even knew about her. So I wonder if she was even part of any U.S. records that could tell law enforcement that she existed, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe she... 
was kind of off the record. The DNA results came back as a match, confirming that these bones belonged to Crystal Reyes. So Al Tamala and Anna Reyes were finally able to be indicted on actual murder charges in December of 2014. So, before we talk about their sentencing and whatnot, we're going to discuss some of what was learned about what this poor little girl went through. And listener discretion is advised. We're about to discuss child abuse. Um, first, we're going to discuss some things that Anna's niece, Annette Rodriguez, and Maria the Nanny had noticed while living in the house with Crystal. They noticed subtle things that they thought were strange, like how Crystal was only allowed to eat dinner after everyone else had finished, and she had to eat alone. This kind of reminds me of Lauren Kavanaugh and Erica Parsons or the Turpin kids. If you haven't heard of those... Um, we have covered them in the past, and all their stories are tragic as well. But here's another thing they noticed that sounds like Lauren's experience. Crystal didn't have a bed of her own. She slept on the floor with sheets and pillows laid out. But instead of sleeping in someone else's room, they made her sleep in the closet. And the parents couldn't have let her sleep on their floor or something? Like... They have this giant mansion house, but they can't get their daughter a bed or a real room. I I don't even get it. That's so cold. Maria also remembered a time where Anna flipped out on Crystal for bragging about being prettier than her sisters. Um, Like, who cares? She's only Yeah, she's only three years old. But Anna and Al dragged her into the bathroom and laughed at the little girl as they shaved her curls off her head. Mm. Such an overreaction. And humiliation. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about learning humility, but this is just straight-up physical and emotional abuse. And think of how that would make a little girl feel. Even the other three kids joined in on the mockery and laughing at Crystal as they cut her hair off, It's shaming and humiliating and in itself would have been damaging to this girl's self-worth if she would have survived. Hmm. On another occasion, the family had rented a condo in Colorado for a Christmas ski trip. The older kids on the trip had gotten into a snowball fight. Anna and Al brought three-year-old Crystal outside to join. She was in her pajamas and barefoot. (sighs) Keep in mind, they're on a ski trip? And having a snowball fight. Who the heck would put their toddler in the middle of a snowball fight in the first place, but with no boots or even shoes? But it got even worse. The older kids, along with Anna and Al, started targeting Crystal with the snowballs. Annette didn't know what to do about this, so she went inside to shower and change clothes. This could have been an opportunity to defend a poor little girl you saw being abused. But I can't fault her much because she was only around 16 years old and completely dependent on these people she was living with. They were terrible people, but she needed them. When Annette was inside, she heard Anna and Al yelling at each other, stressing out because Crystal had turned blue and her body was shaking uncontrollably. They were holding her under a hot shower, trying to get her to stop. What the heck did you think would happen? Right? Doesn't... Like, obviously this was going to happen. There's a reason we have to wear boots and coats 
in the snow. They were loudly arguing because they thought Crystal was going to die, but thankfully the shower revived her. Not too long after this event, Annette Rodriguez decided to move out of the Reyes Tamala home and back to her mother. She was scared of them. So that was the last of the abuse that she had witnessed. But Maria still lived with them, and she saw the abuse escalate even more. Anna and Al started to bind Crystal's hands and feet and hang her between two doors on the doorknobs. She would hang there so long that she started to get cuts on her wrists and ankles. She would cry, and the whole family would ignore her. One time, Maria saw Al step on the child as he passed by her. Oh, uh, why? Uh, so they were not only abusing this poor little girl, but they were training their other three children to be abusers themselves. And remember, Crystal is a three-year-old girl that only speaks Spanish, and she's trapped in a country full of m mostly monolingual English speakers. She literally didn't have a voice to tell anyone about her horrible experiences, and the people in the house ignored her. Eventually, they started to lock Crystal into a small plastic dog crate. It was only 20 inches wide. She was all cramped up inside, and sores began to form on her body from laying in her own waist. She literally couldn't move anywhere to get away from it, because her living space was just so tiny. They were treating her worse than a dog. Much worse. Completely neglecting her natural physical needs. Crystal was forced to live in a perpetual bent position because the crate was too small for her to fit comfortably. She started to form dark green bruises all over her frail little arms. They didn't even give her a blanket or a pillow. It was just a hard surface that she had to constantly lay on. And the only time she was able to be cleaned was the rare occasions where they would carry her outside and hose down her oh. and the crate. But that's just a hose, no soap or shampoo, and the water's probably freezing cold. I feel so bad for this little girl, and I wish so badly I could help her get out of this hell she's living in. So they literally just moved the crate around? She didn't even get out of it? Uh, it's, that's what it sounds like. Crystal was kept in this crate for several weeks, and the longer it went on, the softer and weaker her cries for help became. From cries to whimpers, she got to a point where she completely lost her appetite. She stopped eating and stopped producing waste. At one time, she had been a healthy, plump little girl, but she had withered away, and you could see her bones through her skin. Her poor little body was starving. One evening in 1997, as the sun began to set, the three older children were playing in the driveway of the home. Crystal was locked in her dog crate in the garage, wearing nothing but a pair of underwear. She called out to her siblings for help as Anna Reyes committed the final act of abuse against Crystal. Anna was annoyed with all the noise Crystal was making as she whimpered. She pulled the little girl out of the crate, put a towel over her head, then started to wrap her up with a clear packing tape, with a towel around her face and her arms taped down to her sides. Pack oh my gosh, this is really terrible. No, packing tape is that clear tape you use to wrap packages, and it's really strong. You can't rip it the way you do with duct tape. You 
pretty much need scissors or something sharp to cut it. It's extremely hard to pull apart. So this poor little girl had no chance of getting free from this. Crystal cried out to her mother in Spanish, Don't do this, promising that she'd be quiet. But Anna placed the starving little girl into a tall cardboard box after binding and gagging her. Then she just left her there. Al and Anna went on a bike ride after this like nothing had happened. Apparently they thought that leaving Crystal like this for an hour as they rode their bikes would really teach her a lesson about making noise. Like Crystal is the one in the wrong that needs to learn a lesson. What a couple of trash parents. Once they returned from their ride, Al went to the box in the garage. Crystal was still standing inside, but she was leaning against one side. He pulled her out of the box, cutting the tape away and unwrapping the towel, but her little body had turned blue. She was gone. It's so freaking sad and unnecessary that this happened. And when we cover stories like this, it just makes my heart sink into my gut. Like, I can't understand how someone could be so cruel. Mm-mm. Al ran inside the house and told Anna that there was something wrong as he brought her out to the garage with him. Oh my gosh. As if he's surprised. Right. He said that he did chest compressions and tried to revive her. But I don't know if I believe that. He'd been abusing this girl for months, maybe even years. And like I've said before, in my opinion, if you're capable of abusing another person, I think you're capable of murder. Anna. Oh, sorry. It's just a matter of time before abuse becomes murder, you know? Mm -hmm. Anna started to panic when she realized what had happened, saying, No, she's alive. She's alive. They argued for a while over whether they should call 911, but Anna really didn't want the police to come. I mean, she was very much responsible for Crystal's death. Whether it was her intention or not, she murdered her daughter. In Spanish, Anna said to Al, bury her. So this part of the story is so disturbing. Just to warn you all, it's going to be a lot like the Robbie Wayne story from this point on. Al and Anna took the body of the little girl that they had neglected and abused to death, wrapped her in a white bedsheet, and loaded her into his green Ford Bronco. They drove into the desert southwest of Phoenix on State Route 238. Al had previously patrolled this area as a deputy for the sheriff's office, but now he was on the other side of the law. Anna sat next to him in the passenger seat as they scoped out the area, looking for a place secluded enough to hide what they had done. They were accustomed to transporting illegal substances in the back of this truck because of the drug trafficking work they had been doing to fund their extravagant lifestyle. So they were probably pretty calm and calloused about this whole situation. Next to the little body was a shovel. Just after passing milepost 26 on Stout State Route 238, they slowed down on the shoulder of the road and pulled off onto an unpaved path running off of the highway. It led into the desert. They came to a stop about a mile off the highway and got out. Al opened the back hatch and took out the shovel to start digging a hole. It was late and getting dark, so Anna held a flashlight to light the area for him. They placed the little girl's body into the shallow grave and covered her up. So, 
Crystal would have been 25 years old at the time of this recording. This poor little girl had her whole life stolen from her, and no one seems to care all that much. It was so difficult to find information about this case, and we had to use all of two articles about her on the internet. But she deserves to have her story told, just like anyone else we talk about. And part of me feels like it may be because she was born in Mexico, and it's unclear whether her mother had brought her into the U.S. legally. But I don't care about that. Her life means just as much as any other victim we talk about, and her life was stolen way too soon because of these selfish pieces of crap. So, speaking of which, Rosie... After they identified the bones they found as crystals, how did her murderers pay for what they did? Al Tamala was on probation at the time after serving 10 years in prison for a drug conviction. His murder trial began on October 18, 2016 and lasted a month. All the detectives that had investigated Crystal's case testified, describing what they had learned through interviews along the way. Maria, the housekeeper, wept as she shared what she knew about Crystal's abuse, and her biological father talked about his brief romance with Anna Reyes, how she broke his heart, and how he was affected when he learned about his daughter and her death. Ultimately, on November 8, 2016, Al Tamala was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. (sighs) So thankfully, he was able to be punished for what he did. But unfortunately, Anna's whereabouts were unknown when the truth about Crystal came out, and she's still nowhere to be found. She had been deported to Mexico back in 2008 after serving eight years in prison for the same drug charge that Al had served time for. But it's just so frustrating that the person that actually took her own daughter's life will never be held accountable for what she's done. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that if she wouldn't have been deported, she probably could have been charged. But they had no idea what she had done when they deported her, and no clue they were actually doing her a favor. So, ah. But that's it for Crystal Reyes. Wow. Poor Crystal. That's oh. so unfair. Oh, this story, as I was... Especially writing these last few pages, just my heart was aching, you know, and I was mm-hmm. getting sick to my stomach because it's just thinking about the way they treated her. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if she, like, had gotten away with cheating on her husband and not telling. Um, I can't think of the other guy's name. Darren? Darren, if she had gotten away with it and her and Darren were together, if things would have turned out differently for Crystal? Probably. I mean, Anna and Al seemed like they had a really, really toxic relationship. Yeah. It's so upsetting that, I mean, I'm really glad that Al got life, but like the mom. I know. Should. She's the one that taped up her daughter and suffocated her to death in a box. Part of this reminds me of a child called it yeah you actually just read that book didn't you i did again for the second time maybe the third there's a lot of really bad crap that happens out there but we haven't been talking about as much really terrible sad stuff like this lately 
because we've trying to I'm sorry, I can't talk. We've been trying to lighten it up a little bit, but we still want to cover stories like this. Cuz it is a true crime podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's Crystal's story. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say about it. It's a really dissatisfying ending. It is. Pretty much so. But okay. <clears throat> Let's push that away now and um talk about something happy. Okay. We got a review of the week. Also, I want to apologize that we're both kind of zonked right now. We're always zonked. Yeah. Nothing new has happened. Well, <laughs> sometimes we record on our days off and True. we're a little more, you know, energetic. But today we're, we, we're recording this literally hours before it's going live because we've had such a busy month. And so we had to record it after a long day of work and we're both pretty exhausted, but... We're happy to finally have this case done. Yeah, because it's one that I've been kind of dreading covering because it's so sad. But I'm going to read the review now. Yes, this is a five star, guys. From Criddle Beans. Criddle Beans. Name. Thank you, Criddle Beans. It says informative and interesting content. I have fallen in love with this podcast. Uh So many of these stories are so important, and I really want to applaud Rosie and Ryan for everything they are doing. Some of the stories they share have really touched my heart and have affected how I look at the world around me. I am a true crime junkie, but I rarely ever read or look into abuse. It's a good outlet for learning and becoming more vigilant of abuse, of abuse that could be going on. I am so thankful for them and look forward to every week for the new episodes to be released. Aww. That's so nice. Thank you, Criddle Beans. Thanks, Crid. I'm glad I liked that. said it. He or she don't know. I know. I sure. assume it's a girl as well, but I don't know most why. of our listeners are. That's probably why. But I appreciated how they said that it has affected how I look at the world around me because that's exactly since we started this podcast. It's really affected my perspective and my worldview. Hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in some ways, making me more grateful for what I have, and in other ways, making me more cautious. And paranoid about the people around me. Very much so. But that's a healthy thing to have, I think. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, thank you, Criddle Beans. I love your name. Can't say it enough. Um, But, yeah. So, thank you guys so much for listening. If you really enjoy our show and you would like four other bonus episodes right away, you can go support us on Patreon if you want. The link's... Uh, link is in the show notes where we'll also send you some cool stuff along with your patronage Mm -hmm. and it's soon to be five premium episodes up on there it is it's we're it's in the works our next premium episode will be out shortly but you can also follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast and Twitter at VOV Pod and email us at VOV Podcast at gmail.com All those links will be in the show notes. So, do we have any cat news? No. Besides them being locked on the porch right now? I was... I just want to have, like, a a public awareness announcement. Because something really terrible happened to me the other day. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I was driving on the freeway? Or was it the highway? Oh, that... And a semi-truck was in front of me, 
and I was very responsible driving at a safe speed and safe distance and the semi-truck rolled down their window and tossed out a gas station coffee cup you know styrofoam the lid well me and my friend were like oh no as it smacked into my car on the windshield the hood and the grill and as I started to put on my windshield wiper blades to get the coffee off my windshield my friend said wait a second that's not No, no, it couldn't be. And it was poop. The trucker had pooped into a cup and thrown it out of his window, and it got all over my car. And I just want people to be aware of this problem. Now, to be clear, we're not maligning truckers in any way. I'm just letting... We we love truckers. They make the world literally go round. We love some of the truckers. We're talking about you, Shannon and John. Poopy out of their car. Yeah, that seems like a real bad egg. It was really the trucking industry. I was so shocked I couldn't get the license plate because I was just like, "What? What kind of world is this?" Yeah, I don't, I don't fault the driver for pooping while they're driving. (laughs) Like, you got to keep your schedules, and they spend a lot of time driving, but. Tossing it out the window when there's traffic behind you, that's just downright irresponsible. It was so bad. So then I went to the the gas station ASAP. I got the deluxe, most expensive washdown, pulled out, got out of the car, inspected. Still poop, guys. Still doo-doo. Stuck to my car. So then I went in the gas station and I went up to the cashier and I said... I was in a really bad mood at this point, as you can imagine. And I said, there's still poop, human poop on my car. What are you going to do about it? They were probably so confused. That's the only explanation I gave them. And then they gave me a free, a second free deluxe car wash. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They were probably like, who is this crazy lady? (laughs) It was so bad. Oh, I have one question. Uh Uh-huh. Was it holiday or quick trip? Um, holiday. Ooh. What? Those cups are a little more fragile than the quick trip ones. I don't know the cup. I thought you meant where I went for the... I didn't pay attention to the cup. Oh. (laughs) I thought you meant where I got the car wash. Well, I'm just saying, like, the quick trip cups seem a little more rigid than the holiday ones. So they wouldn't explode as much, but... All I know... Is what the trucker had for dinner the night before. Was there corn? Yeah. Uh. Wasn't gross? <laughs> wow. I took a if picture we, of it. If we haven't lost our listeners yet, oh. I don't know what's wrong I with just want to warn my listeners about keeping a safe distance from semi-trucks. That's all. <laughs> Again, don't malign truck drivers. It's not like... I'm not. You should be at a safe distance from any cars, but in case you see something flying out. I mean, you must not have been that far away, huh? I was. Huh. Must have. Well, I guess when you're going 70 miles an hour. I don't know. That's it. That's all I had to say. And then I proceeded to tell everybody that day I was having a really crappy day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Didn't you use a different word, though, when you told me? (laughs) <laughs> no. Just kidding, this is a family show. <laughs> um because we have little kitties listening. 
Literal kitties. Now, speaking of burrito, our little kitten, as we were coming into the office to record tonight, and burrito was nowhere to be found, then all of a sudden, like, as Rosie walked up to her chair for recording, burrito jumped into the chair with his little ball to play fetch. It's like, really? Right now? It's like they know when we're coming in here to record, and they kind of resent it. And they just want to distract us. Sorry. (laughs) Are you done? (laughs) Done with this? Um, My only other news is that I'm going to paint my bathroom on Saturday. Woo! We should probably wrap this up, because we're coming up on an hour and 20 minutes of recording, and i got to edit. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Hello, and let me tell you about Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. Your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Nadine Royal. We're a couple of friends who met in the pub, and we developed a friendship based on our mutual love of booze, podcasts, and pub quizzes. We met in the Settlement in Stirling, and that's where we record. Each week, we both tell a story of something twisted. One long one, and one short one. And we decide who goes first. Based on the flip of a coin. So if that sounds like something that would tickle your fancy, you can always find us wherever you normally find your podcasts. Just search for Twisted Britain. Thanks. Bye.